Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. From London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The war in Ukraine involves two of the world's biggest wheat suppliers, and prices are already on the up. That will have huge effects in the Middle East, where a threat to generous bread subsidies is as much a political as a budgetary concern. Mexico City's airport is among the most crowded in Latin America. The city needs a new one. And as of Monday, it has one, complete with wrestling-themed toilets and a museum. But some worry that the new airport's costs outweigh its benefits. First up, though. In Mariupol and beyond, Russian forces have turned their firepower on civilians. Yesterday, President Biden suggested worse may be to come. The more his back is against the wall, the greater the severity of the tactics he may employ. He's already used chemical weapons in the past, and we should be careful what about to, what's about to come. But the point is, it's real. Last week, a reporter asked Mr. Biden whether he thought Russian actions in Ukraine made Vladimir Putin a war criminal. Oh, I, I, I think he is a war criminal. President Biden is not alone. More than one million people have signed an online petition calling for a special international tribunal to try the Russian president and his closest allies for war crimes. Such courts have tried and convicted war criminals from Rwanda, Serbia, and elsewhere before. Could the same happen to Mr. Putin? Biden, the U.S. Senate... The UK Prime Minister and others have all called Putin a war criminal. That's extremely unusual. John Parker is an international correspondent at The Economist. At the most, people say that war crimes have been committed in a country. It's very unusual to say about a serving head of state. He's a war criminal. I think this is an indication of the seriousness with which everyone takes what's going on in Ukraine and the kind of moral outrage felt almost all around the world. And John, once someone is called a war criminal, what happens? What sort of investigation does that trigger? The president calling someone a war criminal doesn't really make any difference. There are, however, several kind of international legal avenues that calling someone a war criminal leads up. The first of those is an investigation by a world court called the International Criminal Court. The International Criminal Court was set up to try individuals for things like war crimes, crimes of aggression, crimes against humanity and genocide. This is called the ICC, and it's got an investigation going. It set one up almost immediately. The, the invasion began. 
The other legal channel is through an in, another international court called the International Court of Justice. This uh, is also in The Hague, and its job is to adjudicate on disputes between states. So as I said, the ICC is about individuals. The ICJ is about states. So the ICJ, do you think we'll see any cases there? It's already had a case. Uh, Ukraine brought a case under the UN Genocide Act, and the court ruled overwhelmingly, 13 to 2, in favor of Ukraine and against Russia. It made a very widespread ruling. It, it didn't explicitly say that war crimes were being committed, but it did say that civilians were being attacked. They were very vulnerable, and that would make it a war crime. Under the rules of the International Court of Justice, Ukraine is allowed to refer the case to the UN Security Council. It hasn't done that yet, but I mean, it could do. Unfortunately, Russia has a veto as a, one of the permanent five members of the UN Security Council. So nothing is going to happen there. And let's go back to, to the ICC, to the International Criminal Court. What acts specifically are they looking at that they think may be war crimes? So attacking civilians counts as a war crime. And so they're looking at things like the bombing of the theater in Mariupol, which was the largest air shelter in the besieged city of Mariupol. It had numbers vary, let's say a thousand people, mostly women and children. If that was a deliberate attack, as it seems to have been, that would definitely count as a war crime. So would deliberately shelling refugees in humanitarian corridors. That's a war crime. And so let's say the ICC does find that, say, the bombing of the theater in Mariupol or the, or the attacks on refugee corridors were in fact war crimes. What happens then? Do you think we'll see any meaningful judgments? Do you think we'll see people actually brought to justice? I think it's very unlikely in the case of the ICC, Russia doesn't recognize its authority. So what the ICC could do, normally what it would do, is get a case against someone, issue a warrant for that person's arrest, and the country that's agreed to abide by the terms of the ICC is supposed to hand over that person to the ICC for trial. Well, since Russia doesn't recognize the ICC, it wouldn't hand over anybody and wouldn't cooperate with the ICC in its investigations. Is this a structural problem with the ICC? Uh, I, I mean, has, have any of their judgments ever resulted in someone being punished or jailed for their crimes? Yes. Well, let me use the term the international justice system because there have been special UN tribunals for the war crimes committed in former Yugoslavia, for example. They actually managed to extradite the president of Serbia, Slobodan Milosevic, though he died before the case came to trial. They did manage to charge the head of the Bosnian Serb army, Ratko Mladic, of genocide. Uh, Mladic was accused of being in charge of the massacre of, of Muslim men in Srebrenica. He was charged of found guilty of genocide and is still in jail. And what about Putin himself? What do you think the chances are that, that he may be brought to justice? Very, very remote, so long as he stays in power. It's one thing to be able to say war crimes have been committed. And also, I think it'd be pretty easy to say 
that Putin is responsible in some very general way for the war. I mean, his speeches make absolutely clear that it's his war. But normally, that's not enough for a war crimes charge. You have to be able to link a person directly with an action. So you would need, and the, the ICC or the ICJ would need some kind of written order from Putin telling commanders on the ground to bomb a school or a hospital. The connection between Putin and the defense ministry and the chief of staff is such that there might well be such orders, but the chances of our getting them are extremely remote. So I personally think that so long as Putin stays in power, it's unlikely that any international jurisdiction is going to be able to draw a direct link between him in the Kremlin and a war crime on the ground in Ukraine. And so if that's true, if the chances of bringing Putin up on charges are that remote, what's the point of bringing these cases at all? Well, I think two things. I think politicians in democratic countries just think it's important to like, call a spade a spade to say, you know, right away, we recognize this not as a legitimate military action, but as a war crime. And the way it's being carried out fits into all our categories of war crime. Another thing is, I think, it's a way of saying that Putin is challenging everything that we have tried to do since 1945. I mean, remember, many of these war crime statutes go back to the end of the Second World War. So it's also a way of saying this isn't just like an individual case. We're defending something that's been in operation for 80 years. And so Vladimir Putin and his cronies are probably safe from justice as long as they're either in power or in Russia with people sympathetic to them in power. That's my view, yes. Right. Well, that is a bleak conclusion. But thank you very much for joining us, John. Thank you very much. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from The Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has caused millions of refugees to surge into neighboring countries. But the war will soon have much more far-reaching effects. Many countries in the Middle East and Africa have refused to express support for Ukraine or condemnation for Russia, saying it's not their war. But in no small way, it is, given looming shortages that may yet rock the region's economies or even its politics. Ukraine and Russia both are major producers and exporters of food staples, particularly wheat. Greg Karlstrom is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist. And the production and trade of those goods is now being disrupted by the fighting in Ukraine and by the sanctions and economic isolation of Russia. And this is set to cause a real crunch in a lot of countries that depend on those food imports to feed their people. So how big a crunch are we talking here? 
to put this into context, Russia is the largest exporter of wheat in the world, and Ukraine is the fifth largest exporter. So a, a very large part of global supply comes from these two countries. Much of it is loaded onto ships in the Black Sea and then shipped out to importing countries around the world. But the conflict in Ukraine has effectively halted shipments out of the Black Sea. There have been several cargo ships in recent weeks that have been damaged by Russian fire. It's become increasingly expensive, if not impossible, to get insurance to sail into the Black Sea. So it's become very difficult to move these goods out of Ukraine and Russia. Uh, on top of which, Ukraine recently announced that it would put a ban on all food exports until the end of the year because it needs that food, obviously, to feed its own people. And Ukraine is meant to begin planting spring wheat in the coming weeks. That looks imperiled in part because farmers have been forced to take up arms to defend their own country. So there is the prospect of both lower production coming out of Ukraine and far lower shipments of what is produced. And where will those shortfalls hit hardest? We will see them across the Middle East and Africa. If you start with sub-Saharan Africa, food was getting more expensive there to begin with. Food inflation reached about 11% in October. That looks set to worsen now, not only because key exports are being cut off in terms of food, but uh, also because Russia and Belarus are major exporters of fertilizer. And any cutback to exports from fertilizer from those countries will either make it more expensive for farmers to buy the stuff, or it will mean they use less of it and probably will hurt food production. In terms of wheat, the first countries to be hit in Africa are likely to be countries like Kenya and Ghana, some of the fastest growing countries on the continent. Wheat accounts for about one third of cereal consumption in both of those countries. It's about one quarter of consumption in Nigeria. And most of the wheat used by those three countries is imported. But I would say perhaps no country in the medium term looks more vulnerable than Egypt. Why Egypt? We'll start with just the size of the Egyptian market. This is a country of 102 million people. It's by far the largest country in the Arab world. And wheat in the form of bread is the main staple for most Egyptians. So the country needs 21 million tons of wheat every year to feed those 102 million people. It produces less than half of that at home. And of what it imports, 86% of those imports come from Russia and Ukraine. So its two main suppliers of wheat may not be accessible anymore. On top of which, we've already seen, even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, prices on futures markets were soaring. So the government is not only scrambling to find new suppliers right now, but also very concerned about how it's going to pay those suppliers. And this is a real concern for the Egyptian government because we have seen throughout Egyptian history that bread is one of the most politically sensitive issues. Why is that, though? Why is bread political? Since 1989, you've been able to walk into a state-subsidized bakery in Egypt and buy 20 loaves of beledi bread, which is a pita bread that is the main staple, 20 loaves of that for one Egyptian pound. The price hasn't increased in more than 30 years. Now, back in 1989, that one pound was worth almost a dollar. Today, it's worth about six cents. Those 20 loaves of bread cost something like 70 to 75 cents to produce. So the Egyptian government is subsidizing more than 90% of the production costs. It's hugely expensive, but it is something that many Egyptians rely on to survive. So this increase in wheat prices is going to put a real strain on the country's finances. The government had budgeted this year for wheat imports at about $255 a ton. Now you look at futures markets, prices are flirting with 400. The Egyptian government may have to come up with at least $1.5 billion in additional money to pay for its wheat imports this year. Well, I see the, the scope of the fiscal problem, but you hinted that this is a stability problem. It is. If you go back to 1977, Anwar Sadat, who was then the Egyptian president, tried to, with the help of the IMF, do away with many of Egypt's food subsidies, including the bread subsidy. 
That decision lasted only a few days. There were food riots that broke out. The army had to be called in to put them down. Uh, and the president quickly reversed his decision. And for decades, no president has wanted to go down that road of hiking bread prices because they're very worried about the consequences. The current president, Abdel Fattah Sisi, has never liked the bread subsidy. He's made comments about lifting it. Last year, he said it was unreasonable to sell 20 loaves of bread for the price of one cigarette. So he is keen, actually, to cut that subsidy. And soaring prices for wheat could give him an excuse to change it. The question, of course, is how the public is going to react. About one third of Egyptians live below the official poverty line, which is 857 pounds a month, which is really not enough to live on, especially in a city like Cairo. They have been squeezed by years of higher taxes, by reduced energy subsidies. Many Egyptians are in no position to spend more on their staple food. And let's talk about the situation more broadly. You suggested that this is a a continental scale concern. It is. You look across the Arab world, really, and bread is the main source of calories for millions of people. And there is a history of bread riots across the region, not only in Egypt, but also in countries like Jordan, Morocco, Tunisia in decades past. You could say that higher food prices in 2008 and 2009 were a contributing factor to the Arab Spring, which began the following year. And so there is a very strong link between bread and politics. It has long been the third rail of politics across the region. And you have a lot of governments right now that are very concerned about how they're going to deal with the impact of skyrocketing food prices. So with that added danger, then how do you see this playing out? I think a lot of it will depend on how long this war in Ukraine continues for. If it ends fairly soon, if these disruptions are fairly time limited, then a country like Egypt will probably be able to muddle through. They have four to five months of wheat in reserve. They also have their local harvest, which is due usually to begin in April, which will give them some additional breathing room. So they will probably manage to get through this. On the other hand, you look at a country like Lebanon, which has barely one month of wheat in reserve and also a government that is effectively bankrupt right now. It is a very real, very imminent concern how they're going to provide bread for their people. The longer this goes on, though, and the longer the disruption to global food supply because of the war in Ukraine, the more difficult it's going to become for Arab governments, regardless of how much wheat they have stockpiled. And it's going to leave them with a a very difficult choice between, on the one hand, running much larger deficits to pay for food subsidies, and many of them are not in good fiscal shape to begin with, or on the other hand, cutting these subsidies, raising prices, making life incredibly difficult for their people, and risking the unrest that comes with that. So... Very worrisome, of course, for governments, but also very worrisome for hundreds of millions of people across the region. And it tells you a lot about how precarious the economic situation is for so many people in the Middle East. Thanks very much for your time, Greg. Thank you. On this week's episode of Money Talks, our sister show about business, finance, and economics, our correspondents look at the global scale of these agricultural effects, not just on wheat, but on other grains, and on vital fertilizer components, without which crop yields all over will fall and prices will spike. Look for Money Talks wherever fine podcasts are sold and traded. Southeast Asian monarchs used to keep white elephants as a sign of power and wealth. They were supposed to signify that the ruler and his polity were blessed. 
but in practice, the expense and trouble of caring for the animals made them a curse. The phrase white elephant has since been applied to public works projects whose cost exceeds their utility. Many considered the Empire State Building a white elephant when it opened in 1931. And some say the same thing about three big new projects in Mexico. So at the end of the last year, I went on a tour of the airport. And, you know, it's very shiny. It's very nice. Sarah Burke is The Economist's Mexico City bureau chief. I was shown around by the armed forces, who are the ones who built it and will be operating it as well, which is a whole other issue. It has beautiful ancient artifacts displayed. It has lovely toilets that have Mexican wrestler themes or Day of the Dead themes. And it's one of the signature projects of the president, Andres Manuel López Obrador. He has three of them. And they've provoked quite a lot of controversy, more than big public works tend to always do. So what are the three projects and why the controversy? So aside from the airport, he's building an oil refinery in Tabasco, which is his home state, which is a big bet on fossil fuels at a time when many governments are trying to transition to green and clean energy. It is unlikely to open this year as scheduled, and it may actually cost 40% more than the planned almost $9 billion to build it. So there's a lot of controversy around that project. The third project is a train that will go around the Yucatan Peninsula, and that will take tourists and locals and at night cargo. You could say that might work, but it's going to now bypass two of the region's big population centers. So it won't go actually through them. So people have to find a way of getting to a train station. And it's causing a lot of environmental damage. There's been trees cut down and it's threatening the flooded caves, the cenotes in the region. And what do we know about the cost of these projects? The big problem with these projects is there isn't a lot of transparency. The government has been very opaque about the costs, the cost-benefits analysis. You know, that's often the case with government projects, but this one is worse than most. And the army is building them and operating. So a lot of that means that there's even more secrecy shrouding them. So it's very hard to make an assessment about the costs. Things that have been done, analysis by NGOs working in Mexico, suggest that the costs are going to be rising. And what we can say is that the amount of money being put towards them in the budgets seems disproportionate when you look at how much is being spent on education, say, or health. And are these projects necessary? In particular, doesn't Mexico City need a new airport? The refinery and the train, it's hard to say they're necessary. Yes, Mexico City does need a new airport. This has been something that people have been talking about for several decades now. And in fact, the previous administration had started work on a big airport that was going to replace the current airport. But the questions on this one surround whether this particular airport, this design by this current administration is what Mexico City needs. And a lot of people think not. First of all, it costs a lot of money to cancel the previous airport. And this airport is not not going to replace the current airport. It's going to work in tandem with it because its capacity is only around 19.5 million passengers a year, which is about 40% of the number that was served by Mexico City in 2019. I mean, there are some plans that it might expand, but it's very hard to see that this is going to not make things more complicated in the short term. You know, the airspace is more complicated. The transport links to this airport are not finished. I mean, only four airlines have currently said they're going to fly from there. And the only international route is to Venezuela. 
What do you think the final verdict will be on the airport and on the other two projects? Again, because of the lack of transparency, it's very hard to make judgments. But most judgments is that they're not going to be positive. Let's put it that way. In the case of the Yucatan train, for example, you could be building roads or fuel connections, and they might provide bigger benefits to the poor southeast of the country. So it's also about the opportunity cost. And the same with jobs. The government says these are creating X number of jobs. And that's true. It might create jobs, but many will be temporary ones in constructing the projects. This is a country with a lot of poverty and you have to spend money in the right way. And it's not clear that these projects are doing that. All right, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, John. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.